I was born in Sioux City, Iowa, and lived there for four years, and then, boop, next. 1964, I go to kindergarten. I had been diagnosed with amblyopia. It's called the case of the lazy eye. If you know anything about eyeglasses in the 1960s. <laughs> I had Coke bottle bottoms for my glasses, but they wanted to see if they could correct it. I started kindergarten wearing an eye patch. And I was already physiologically the smallest male in the class. Those were things. Those were things in my life. They finally figured, no, the eye patch thing didn't work. They got the bad eye up to being better, and they took the eye patch off, and meow. So I've been in glasses ever since. They're part of me. I don't hardly even notice them. This is a huge era in my life. 1971, we're headed home from church. As the story goes, my sister is screaming from the back seat, Clark, knock it off. Clark, stop it. Clark, what are you doing? Clark. And my mother turned around, and my arms were outstretched and rigid. I was foaming at the mouth, and my eyes were rolled out of my head. And my whole family learned simultaneously that I had developed epilepsy. That is not cool ever. But when you're in middle school, when you're sitting on a desk in a study hall playing chess, and you have a seizure in front of your friends, and you send the chessboard flying, and you wake up, and you realize you've wet your pants. That's not a cool middle school thing. It just isn't. It just isn't. And not making fun of anybody else we have determinations to make when things like that happen in our lives. And I decided, I'll just be a dork about the whole thing. And so the guy that did this would come up to me and he'd go, and I'm like, man, you blew it. I became a circus ride and you didn't even sell tickets. He's like, what? He didn't know what to do with that, but he stopped. But he stopped. Huge in my life. Huge in my life. 1973, I go to high school. Yeah, freshman, freshman in high school, been with middle school. Iowa has a state law, you cannot drive if you've had a seizure until you go a year seizure-free. I can't get my learner's permit. 
not even legally possible. Plus, there's no way having a driver education, dad, he would let me bend or break any rules anyway. So I thought, I'm going to try this track thing. Now, before I say this, you have to picture me before Buddha, okay? <laughs> so I'm a freshman in high school, and I'm doing a 24-2, 200-meter. That's good, yes, as a freshman. Yeah, I'm fast. I'm fast. I'm thinking, I've got my future. I've got my future. It's all laid out for me. Boom. Another seizure. Freak of nature. So what did this mean? Almost all of my way through high school. The neurological team I was with was telling my parents certain things were very important. Bedtime at 8.30. What? Like I wanted to have another seizure? Bedtime at 8.30. Well, then what do you do after school? This is back in the day when teachers gave homework that you couldn't complete by the end of class. I'd go home and I'd start on my homework because I had to be done with everything by 8.30 so I could go to bed. You get old enough to date. You want to know how untypically masculine in American male world it is? To tell a girl, if she says yes, that she'll have to pick you up? Because I can't drive. Even at 16, I can't drive. Because my sophomore year. Man, if I can just knock it down a second a year. Just a second a year. That's like forever for a sprinter. Boom. I have another seizure. So now I can't even get my license at 16. I need nobody's pity. Because here I stand. I still have epilepsy. But you don't know that. I'm not walking across campus and none of you is going like, oh my gosh, it looks like an epileptic. Oh, no, you're not doing that. Why? Why aren't you doing that? Because, people, I take my meds every day. That's why. If you have, it's brain rewiring. And if you're on meds that are supposed to rewire your brain, don't self-medicate. Take them. There are people that love you, that are depending on you being responsible and being healthy. I beg of you. My wife, God rest her soul, she always said, you are a unicorn. And I embrace that. I'm fine. Some of my people have already heard this before, but all of you haven't. Somebody comes up to me at 17, okay, it can't be track, 
I need to quit. What's it going to be? I found choral music. It lit me on the inside like you cannot imagine. And I think one of the reasons I stayed so happy most of my life is because when people came up and, you know, what are you going to do after high school? You know what you're going to do after high school yet? I would be like, yeah, I know exactly what I'm going to do. You do? Yeah. I'm going to go to this school. I'm going to get this degree. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have two children. I'm going to have an earned doctorate. And I'm going to be a Christian college choir director. Yeah, I don't think that's normal for 17. I don't think I've ever worried about normal. And I did some work along the way. But God has blessed me with all those things. Then I take off. I graduate. I go to college. I graduate from that college. And three days before, I hear the greatest words of my life. She said, I do. Mm. Mm. Wow. Wow. And I'm so okay. If you're out there thinking like, man, she must have been brave. <laughs> yeah, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. And then I had to graduate school at the University of Iowa to get my master's. 1982, I finished my master's. And I am hired by Walnut Public Schools to do kindergarten through fourth grade vocal general choral music. I loved it. I loved it. But what was the goal? Nineteen eighty-four. Uh, there's a moment. I became a dad. Some of you may see my oldest son bopping around campus now, working for Mr. Tremaine or Mr. Kuhorn. Um, great young man, incredible work ethic. Nineteen eighty-six. I became the last full-time faculty member hired by Dr. Mabry Miller and Dr. Gary Bartholomew. And I come to York. 1987, I'm a dad again. Yeah, yeah. The oldest is Matthew, the youngest is Mitchell. Mitchell and his wife have given me two granddaughters. They are uber, uber protective uh, about them. And so all I'm allowed to say is that they're now seven and three. I'm not allowed to give out pictures or public names or anything like that. My youngest son is director of comms, and he's very guarded about anybody else finding out anything about his own children. So, 1995. I become Dr. Roush after a four-year journey. So, blessed, blessed with that. December 2014. Um, Clark, you need, Clark, I get a letter in the mail. Clark, you need to come see me. It's from my general practitioner. 
He says, your PSA is up. Well, my wife was a communicator. I thought that was like a public service announcement. I didn't know what PSA was. So I'm diagnosed with prostate cancer. Christmas day of that same month, my father dies. The Rouse family was really ready to see January on the calendar. April 2016, I become Papa to my first granddaughter. Summer of 2018, we're in the waiting room in a hospital in Lincoln. We know that the queen's gallbladder is probably shot. So we're waiting to hear Let's yank that gallbladder and send you home. And we're talking, and she's accepting a job over the phone at Nebraska Westian, and we're doing all this stuff, and somebody comes in, and they don't say, let's yank that gallbladder. They say, I'm sorry to tell you, you have pancreatic cancer. This is not the script. This is not the script at all. She was so brave during treatment. She just wanted to live longer so her granddaughter would have more memories. She was so brave she would leave her job at Wesleyan and go get chemo and then come back and finish teaching. And every other weekend, Friday when she got home till Monday she had to leave, she was in bed. And that became our routine. And that became our life. And sometimes love dictates things to you you could never imagine. November 1, 2019, my mother dies. Eleven weeks later, my wife dies. My epilepsy, the deaths I have experienced in my life, the funky eye, my own cancer that I'm still in treatment for, thankfully. Every three months I go to Omaha and get a $5,000 shot. And I take some pills in the morning and pills at night. And my oncologist has told me, we're pretty sure we know a way that you're going to, we, we know you're going to die with it. Because surgery didn't solve it and radiation didn't solve it and hormone replacement therapy on its own did not solve it. So once every three months, I zip over to Omaha and shh, and they take my blood and they see if we're still okay. He said, you're gonna die with it, we know that. This is the goal, it's just so you don't die from it. So I'm not gonna live every day of my life going, I'm not gonna do that, I'm not gonna do that. 
because what if it stops working and I die? Well, then I have my reward. I'm supposed to hang on to this earth when I can go be with my mom and dad and the queen. I don't have a death wish. Not hoping anything is going to happen. You need to hear someone in your life say, live so that you're ready if it does. I'm ready. I'm ready. So I start year 38 this year. Such an honor, such a privilege to be with such amazing human beings. And one of the things I've had too many students tell me I'm good at to try to have any sort of like false humility about it. But it's such a joy. I get to believe in so many of you more than you believe in yourself right now. And when you finally believe in yourself at that level, it won't be the greatest day for me, it'll be the greatest day for you. So in all these things I've described that are part of my eras, did God make me have amblyopia? No. We all have physical bodies. Did God make my parents die? No. Did God make my wife die? No. Did God give me cancer so I could learn something more about him? No. But we have a choice on when that junk happens, who are we going to give it to? Are you going to try to handle it on your own? Or are you going to give it to the God who loves you and who wants you to understand that sometimes in life there aren't answers to your questions. There's just a God who loves you and will sustain you. Do those things mess with your faith journey? Woohoo, they did with mine. But he's a patient God. He's a loving God. I shared with the choir the other day. As we're into 2024 and beyond, and I don't know what all it's going to bring. I don't have to know. But I want you to sense so much of what you think about God is going to be based on one of these two things. If you serve a God who you think is up there going. Okay, Schwartz, you're going to get it? Come on. What is wrong with you? What? That's going to filter so much of your life, your view of what kind of God it is. Or do you serve a God that's waiting with open arms to love you no matter what? hope that's the one I'm trying to do. There's a part of me that thinks nothing could help you completely understand the complex human being I am. But there's another part of me 
was another part of me that wanted you to understand the parts of my journey because as much as I don't want it to be, some things like that will be parts of your journey. You're going to have grief, but you still have to have joy. There's going to be chaos, but you've got to have calm. There's going to be panic, but you've got to have peace. But you need to embrace all these and hold them simultaneously. I love you. I thank you for your attention. May God richly bless you as he continues to work in your heart and in your life. Thanks, Dr. Roush. <clears throat> and just so we're